she certainly, from the Indian standpoint, is everything that a privileged upper caste Indian woman could possibly be. It makes it complicated because she's also Black and she identifies as a Black woman. So I, there is a there is a lot to unpack. Um, and I think it's it's back and forth. It's complicated and nuanced in a way that no other VP pick or presidential candidate has ever been. Hey, everyone, it's Swathi. Thanks for listening to Fresh Off the Vote. We are a grassroots podcast with a mission to make politics exciting and accessible. Our team is 100% self-identified Asian American Pacific Islanders, ready to make waves for the November 2020 election. We created the podcast as a home for conversations for AAPIs by AAPIs. So Kamala Harris is the new Democratic vice president nominee for the upcoming 2020 U.S. presidential elections. In this episode, you'll hear from two young South Asian women and an Asian American state senator in Ohio, unpacking the complexities of Kamala Harris's half-Black and half-Indian identities. We'll be talking about race, power, caste, and more on representation politics. Look out for our bonus episode coming out this Friday to hear from Morgan Harper, a Black woman in politics offering refreshing takes and inspiration for a call to action. To help us understand the complexities that Kamala's identity presents for young South Asians, we'll first hear from Thanvi Kohli and Laitha Pamirigandam. Thanvi is a friend of Helen Lee, our founder, and Laitha has been a great friend and mentor of mine. They're both Indian-American women who recently graduated from U.S. universities and shared with us why they care deeply about this topic. So, hello, Thanvi. Thank you for joining us on this episode. So, can you take some time to introduce yourself and kind of discuss your background? Yeah, of course. So, my name is Thanvi Kohli. I am a recent graduate of Washington University in St. Louis. I graduated this past May, where I was able to have the opportunity to study international affairs and do undergraduate research, which culminated in a thesis that focused on um, the South Asian diaspora in North America, the theoretical frameworks of it, the historical frameworks, the contemporary aspects of it, um, and more specifically focused on understanding how identity plays a role in the consolidation of state power, which I did through um, grounding my research in case studies. And the case studies were Nikki Haley, a former UN ambassador to, or a former US ambassador to the UN, and then also was the South Carolina governor. Um, she's been in the news recently again, and then was uh, Jagmeet Singh, who is the leader of the NDP party up in Canada. So I was able to write this thesis, which gave me a good couple of years to really think about questions of identity, um, what it means to be South Asian in the United States, and the global and domestic implications of the consolidation of state power. So Nikki Haley is the former governor of South Carolina, and Jagmeet Singh ran for prime minister of Canada in 2019. Thanvi did her thesis studying their Indian heritage and ancestry, and they've both been in the news recently for different reasons, bringing to attention the visibility that Indian politicians have been receiving. So what were your initial reactions or impressions when you heard about her um, as the VP nominee, as well as, you know, your friends and family? How did you guys all react? You know, I think I'd heard rumors, maybe even back in like December and February, like when the primaries were going on, that Joe Biden was going to pick a woman of color. And especially, I think, with the Black Lives Matters movement, that there are a lot of rebellions that were happening in June, July. 
it's not surprising to me that he wanted to choose or choose somebody who could, you know, fit into many different identity slots at all. So I really wasn't surprised. Um, actually, no, I was a bit just because they had that little like altercation, not altercation, but they had that argument during one of the primary debates last July. So that was a little bit surprising, but it made sense to me. They have very similar politics, I would say, very centrist, almost conservative leaning at times. So it wasn't that surprising to me. I think my family and friends were like, we're so happy it's a woman of color. And that was the initial reaction. But I don't think it really made waves, you know, in the way that it may have in other households and other social circles. What about you, Loitha? Can you share a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm Lalita Pamirigentam. I just graduated from The Ohio State University this past May. I have a degree in public policy and I work for the Columbus Women's Commission. I was also a fellow with the Fight for Her campaign this past summer doing electoral work. And I'm really interested in gender and racial equity policy. That's the direction that I'm headed. So this is a really exciting and interesting time. I'm also Indian American, upper caste, Brahmin heritage, Hindu. So that definitely plays a role in how I view this issue. It's really important that Laitha brings up caste because Kamala Harris's mom is upper caste Brahmin. So why is Kamala Harris so complex and her identity so nuanced? You know, she's, I think, the only woman of color ever named vice president or a candidate for vice presidency. Um, So that's obviously like, you know, straight out the door, that's uh, really breaking a lot of barriers. We can't um, underestimate just because we're in an unprecedented time right now where we're seeing a rise of women of color in leadership positions. We can't just disregard that. Like that is something to be celebrated. At the same time, an Indian American identity, as we're seeing right now, is a very complex and nuanced identity. While we can celebrate the fact that we're finally seeing representation in politics as Indian women, we do need to be really critical with the way we celebrate it. For Thanvi, she noticed that right off the bat. Yeah, so I, like I mentioned, I wrote this thesis um, that focused on South Asian uh, politicians as case studies for understanding the wider implications of the South Asian diaspora in North America and how they, you know, gain power. So when I heard that it was Gamla Harris who won, I saw all these hot takes online immediately, like on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, like everywhere you can imagine, like there is a hot take. And I was like kind of disappointed in a lot of the hot takes, honestly. Like it seemed like everyone was just celebrating that she was, you know, a woman of color, that she's black, that she has South Asian ancestry and heritage um, without looking in further and deeper. And when I did a little bit of research um, and from what I knew from the primary season, I was like, yes, Kamala Harris definitely fits into kind of the theorization I did in my thesis in a lot of different ways. She kind of fits a stereotype in terms of who we can predict to gain power in electoral politics um, if you are South Asian. And what is one of those factors that can help accelerate power in electoral politics? Earlier, Laitha mentioned her identity of being upper caste Hindu is important. One of the complexities that Kamala presents. Caste can be a very touchy subject to discuss, but it's important for that very reason. To this day, we still are the beneficiaries of a lot of civil rights movements and um, civil rights action. And so what that did was brought in a lot of high talent, which means upper caste, mostly Indian Americans and and Pakistani people and Bangladeshi people, all upper caste people across religions. Muslims also have caste. What that ended up doing was pulling this divide of, uh, or like pitting this divide of 
brown people versus black people, essentially, right? And so, and and I hesitate to claim the word brown because that applies to so many different communities, but South Asians are generally regarded as, and, and you know this, South Asians are generally regarded as this like model minority, right? Like we are quicker to adapt, we are quicker to assimilate, we are getting the better jobs and we are like infiltrating different spaces in a, in a, way, a way with ease that the black community has never gotten a chance to do. You know, despite that, Black people have been, you know, leaders in this country for how long we've been here, right? And Indigenous people too, right? Like, we'd be remiss not to mention them as well. Like, we've taken, we are building temples on stolen land. There's nothing holy about it, right? So I do think that that's a part of it, the anti-Blackness in our community, because we, we view ourselves, we want to be white, like, in our, like, subconscious. Like, we want to be white. Like, we want the white people to, like, see us as themselves, right? Like, give us respect. And that's, like, not to say that like our parents didn't face their fair share of racism. They certainly did. There was nothing vegetarian to eat in Columbus, Ohio when my dad immigrated here. Like, you know, there's like so much going against our people, but there's a reason that we've made it in mass numbers in the in a way that black people have not. Right. And that's very planned, that's systemic. And the anti-blackness in India, a lot of people want to attribute that to colonialism, but it actually stretches back before that. The caste system is a 3,000-year-old uh, system. It's and, and a lot of people probably a lot of a lot of your audience probably doesn't want to hear that. So there's a reason, right? Like her mom got an incredible education because of her caste, and then they were able to immigrate because of their caste, and they were able to break some norms that might not be accepted in other communities because of their caste, right? Yeah. So that that's definitely a part of it. So we're seeing that people are tweeting about celebrating Holi and Diwali, which are Hindu holidays at the White House. And we saw Joe Biden recently wish India a happy Independence Day in August. So how do you think this kind of plays out when it comes to the Indian American population and the Hindu populations? And do you think it could potentially be considered pandering? Everything about politics is pandering. Um, There is nothing that isn't. Um, Does it matter? Yeah, it does. Um, Because when people... You know how people get to the polls? People get to the polls when they see an issue that reflects them. If you see an Indian woman running for any seat, you're more likely to get the Indian community out there. If you see, you know, an issue being represented that you care about, you're, you're more likely to get out there, right? So it matters in terms of getting people elected. And I think one thing we need to point out is that there's this conflation with Gamla Harris's Indian identity um, with like the entire South Asian identity when in, act- like, in actuality, Gamla Harris is, does not represent the entire South Asian diaspora. She represents a very specific diaspora within the United States. And that is one that is upper caste. That is one that comes from educational privilege, highly skilled, and has deep, deep pockets, right? So she's not representing those cab drivers. She's not representing the recent migrants who may come here without like an educational degree. She's representing, she's not even representing Muslims or any other religion that's not Hindu, basically. Um, and I think we do need to point, point that out because there's implications for that. So I definitely think that Joe Biden, by nominating Kamala Harris and by Kamala Harris making this kind of pivot more towards her Indian identity in terms of expressing it in the past few years, is pandering in the sense that, you know, Kamala Harris is a black woman. And it's only recently that it has come almost come out that she is Indian. 
And so basically we see Gamla Harris being in the U.S. because of her caste power. And she has used this caste power to um, like get even more state power. And so I think it's really interesting and something we should definitely pay attention to who among the Indian diaspora, who among the South Asian diaspora is able to amass power in the U.S. And what are they doing with that power? Are they breaking caste hierarchies? No. Um, are they speaking about them? No. Are they, you know, dealing with the breakdown and trying to break down imperialist like foreign policy? Not. No, we don't see that either. Do we see them trying to break down the carceral state? No. So we don't really see these representative politics working towards any type of liberation that the people are demanding. We see them more kind of reifying power structures that are really white supremacists in nature, no matter what the politician's heritage is. And not to say every single politician is like that. There are some really great elected officials, especially at the local level, especially at the state level and a couple at the federal level who are doing amazing work. But I think for the majority, that is where we see it, especially amongst the ones who have Indian origin. Referencing what Laitha had said earlier, anti-Blackness has been prevalent in the Indian and South Asian community for a long time. We've benefited and profited off of the model minority stereotype in the U.S., and Thunby provides a great analysis of how our anti-Blackness really shows in certain communities. Yeah, I think that, you know, we can kind of see anti-blackness at every step of the way, honestly, from Indians and from some South Asians in general. So like I said earlier, they Indians only began supporting, or not only began, but there was this uptick of support for, for Kamala Harris after she got that nomination for the VP and not during the primaries. And I think we can honestly, you know, stick that to anti-blackness. Like the fact that she was half black and half Indian like covered up her Indianness, I think, in the eyes of the Indian community. And I was talking to a friend about this during a discussion. I think you were there a couple of weeks ago. And she was like, we need to kind of strip it down a little bit. So let's imagine that Gamla Harris was a student, you know, on campus at um not an HBCU, but at a PWI, at a predominantly white institution. And there was um a South Asian association or an Indian student association there. Would they be welcoming to her of her because she's half black? Would she be able to find a place in her niche within that community? You know, from my experience with South Asian organizations on campus, I can pretty firmly say no. They probably wouldn't accept her. They wouldn't understand how to deal with that. And there would be a lot of anti-blackness surrounding that. So I don't, I think there is just a ton of anti-blackness surrounding Kamala Harris, but because she's Brahmin, she's rendered as, you know, okay. She's rendered as someone who will understand and pander to the Indian diaspora. And I think that's why we have such an uptick now. If she was Dalit, if she was OBC, I just don't think that we'd see the uptick. If she was Indian and Muslim, I don't think we would see the uptick from the Indian diaspora, which is very Hindu, right? So we've been hearing from both Dunvi and Laitha about how we can't be so quick to claim Kamala just because she's Indian. She represents a very privileged diaspora of the Indian population. So we need to be smart when evaluating her. Do we feel like she represents all of us? But even before that, does representation even matter? Um, yes, it does. There are studies that show that the more women there are in office, the longer peace negotiations last. The less war there is, the more economic security there is, the more food on the table there is, the more, what like, you know, across the board, women leaders get it done, Right. Um, and that will very tangibly improve millions of lives, right? So mm-hmm. we're thinking like children being separated at the border, like 
now that there's a lens on that, maybe we can get that to be not that way anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, just across the board, women being, and, and women of color specifically being in leadership positions, it really, it's because women, when you have people from these communities who are leading, they know what's up, they know what to address, right? And so that's important. So it's not just about, I don't like the argument of like, oh, that little girl looking up at the like glass ceiling being broken or whatever, right? That's a very, very white feminist argument. No, I'm talking about actual outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. Like actual outcomes improve when you see people who look like you in power because your problems are getting solved. And your problems as a woman of color are more likely to be detrimental problems, mm-hmm. right? Like lack of access to healthcare, lack of access to healthy food, lack of access to education. Those things disproportionately affect women of color. So having women of color be a representative as opposed to white men who God knows what they're thinking because they haven't been getting things done for a long time. (laughs) It it changes things. It changes the outcome. Mm -hmm. Um, But Lolita is quick to provide a follow-up to that. Representation for the sake of representation is ridiculous. Um, It's long since been over the time for that now. Like that's done. We're done with that. Um, Holding leadership accountable is incredibly important. I do think that we need to be really hard on Kamala Harris because If she sets the precedent that you can be a privileged Indian American woman and get away with it, as if your community has never caused harm to other people, then there's no telling what will come next. Tanvi and Lalitha provided great insight on understanding Kamala's Indian identity, whether understanding her place of privilege or what representation looks like for us. I also had the chance to sit down with State Senator Tina Maharath to provide a glimpse of being an Asian American elected official. I am State Senator Tina Maharath of Ohio's 3rd State Senate District. I am the child to refugee parents from the Southeast nation of Laos. So my parents came here as refugees in 1990. Um, I was actually the first U.S. born um, of my family. So I'm a native of Whitehall, Ohio, which is a suburbs over near Columbus, Ohio. So um, I, because of my upbringing, being a child of refugee parents, it actually inspired me to dedicate my life to public service. And that is where I stumbled upon getting elected as Ohio's first Asian-American woman uh, because I was just so tired of always having the wrong people represent me in my local government. And um, I have traditionally, prior to getting elected, helped organize uh, several events in Columbus, Ohio, that pertains to Asians, Americans. So um, I helped organize the Columbus Annual Asian Festival. I've served on the Lao Volunteer Donation Association. And I've also assisted with Ohio's Asian American Health Coalition. So this is not a new community for me. This is something that um, I've been raised around. The community essentially raised me, and now it's my turn to get back. Given your experience in public office and politics, what were your initial reactions on the news of Kamala Harris as the VP nominee? I thought, finally, finally, we have someone up there who looks like me, who acts like me, who's been in something similar that I've been through. Um, because of the fact that not only is she a child to, ref- or not refugees, but immigrants, but she is also someone who has a similar upbringing. So she wasn't another rich old white guy politician who is just moving up in the seats. And it's it's about time that we have someone who is up there who properly represents America, which is someone who has mixed ethnicities and someone who just knows how it feels to actually want and live the American dream. What's it like being an Asian American in politics? Oh, it's been extremely rough uh, because of the fact that, uh, as I already mentioned, we don't have an Asian American commission. 
I, it costs zero dollars to acknowledge the fact that Asian Americans exist here in the state of Ohio. Now, it's frustrating because I, I did initially ask for money for a commission, but, you know, I really wanted to get it passed so much that I said, you know what, we've already uh, been moving along with limited funding. Let's go ahead and just take the money out of it then and just create me a commission. I want something permanent. I want something on the ground running right now as we speak. So that way, past or in the next future, in the next generations, um, my future grandkids, whatever the case would be, I hope my kid has kids, <laughs> he will have a commission set for him and he will have commission that will have a voice in our local government. It's absolutely frustrating as well being a woman and woman of color, specifically an Asian woman here in the General Assembly because of the fact that we've never had true representation before. So when I speak of my experiences, it's very new battleground for them. It's something that they've never experienced before and it, it creates a discussion but it's almost as if I'm jumping on a table and screaming and hoping that someone's listening to me and it's frustrating because I feel like a radical sometimes when I do that when I speak out and say that's not right like this is an experience I have to go through that but it's also a, a different opportunity so because of the fact that we now have an Asian American woman in our general assembly now we get to have a different discussion. We get to have another discussion place on the table. We get to have power at the table. We get to have a seat at the table. I created a table for us, for our future. For context, an Asian American commission is a body that is dedicated to advocating for Asian Americans, recognizing the presence, needs, and challenges of the Asian American community. How, how do you see representation in politics, and, and do you feel like it matters? I feel like it absolutely matters. So that is exactly why I got in the political realm, because of the fact that I realized decades ago, why don't we have an Asian American commission? Why don't we have a seat or a voice in our local politics and our state government? Why don't we have that bare minimum? I, I just can't understand. So what I ended up doing was I ended up going to advocate around to my state representatives and to my um, local elected officials about the, the fact that we don't have a commission and they just disregarded it. It's not that they didn't care. It's just that they didn't have much experience within the subject realm. So they didn't feel confident. They didn't feel comfortable enough to try to create a commission and try to advocate for it when they know nothing about it because they never really had experience with Asians Americans before. And it, I was, of course, grateful that they are transparent, but also disappointed because you are my state representative. Why are you not doing this for me? I, I'm asking for this as a taxpayer, as a constituent, and also as fellow Asian American and actually Ohioan. Can you create this commission for me or at least propose it? I couldn't even find anyone to just do the bare minimum of introducing it. So what happened after that was uh, that's when I just started getting frustrated with other policy items that impact us Asian Americans, such as cultural competency within our healthcare workers and just the list just went on and on and on and I got frustrated and I decided to run for office because I felt like we need better representation in our local government and I'm going to be that person because no one else is stepping up no one else is going to sit there and do all the work it takes to get trained to uh, run for office build a network etc to get elected and it's an absolutely important because we now have a seat at the table we now have decision making power at the table and we now get to have that discussion at the table discussions decisions and power that never existed before. Uh, of course, we've previously had some um, other South Asians representing us in the General Assembly, but they weren't empowered or they didn't feel like uh, they had the motivation to keep empowered their Asian identity. 
So I just felt like we're still underrepresented. I, I need to run for office. I need to win and I need to make sure our voices are existence within our General Assembly. I wanted to critically understand how representation benefits populations. Does it mean and result in actual, tangible outcomes for them? When it comes to Kamala, can we see her representing us? I wanted to get Senator Maharat's take on this. Do you feel like political representation actually benefits the populations that the public official is seen to represent? Absolutely, because of the fact that we have representation with our Asian American community. Now they feel empowered and they feel inspired to take parts of our civic engagement. So what happens in turn that now that I'm elected, I also inspire other people to come to uh, committee hearings and come testify for us and come speak on their experience. And with that exposure, it brings another discussion to the table for my colleagues to see, look, this is what our community has been going through and has been going through for decades. So can we make some bills or can we make some changes about this? And because of the fact that I got elected and uh, my colleagues saw a different perspective of things, we now get to have additional bills to assist us with our age community, such as for diabetes. So getting the screening for diabetes at 23 BMI versus other communities because of the fact that we have a different distinct need compared to other communities. But it hasn't been all fun and games for Senator Maharath to get her name out there, get elected, and truly tangibly represent minorities. I have this discussion with myself every day because of the fact that I look at my son and I just think, you are not going to go through this. I'm going to make sure of it. Because being raised as a child to refugee parents, I didn't have much. I didn't have much opportunity. I had to rely on the good public education system to get me through. I had to rely on other public assistance to get me through, such as um, medical care. So, you know, if it wasn't for the federal level, I wouldn't even have medical coverage growing up as a child. And it, I just the list goes on and on and on of things that could have been done growing up, should have been done growing up, but didn't happen because our local government, the people who represent us, weren't probably representing all of us. So I just look at my son, I just get motivated, inspired, and I always constantly remind myself, he is not going to go through what I went through, and I'm going to promise him that. That is so good to hear. And it's great to see that there's actually tangible results of the representation because many who are, you know, very cynical could argue that, you know, some, some people just think of representation for the sake of representation, but they don't actually look at the policies that that person is actually implementing or things like that. So it's good to hear you discuss the actual tangible on paper results that it pro- produces because like you said, by representing these populations, you get them to come out, you get them to voice their opinions, and you get the actual elected officials to listen to them because they're there, they're present, they're presenting and they're present in front of you. So I, I want to talk about now, I guess, public, holding our public leaders accountable and, and actually discussing, you know, looking at, yes, they represent me, but are they, are their policies representing me? So how can we expect more and really hold our leaders accountable so that, you know, once it comes November 4th, if the Biden-Harris ticket wins, what can we do next? Does it stop there? What should we do? With the true representation, when you get inspired to participate in your civic engagement process, this also means you can call your local representation, so your local government elected officials, and tell them, this is a policy that does not reflect what I went through or does not reflect this district. Vote against it. Because you know these things are recorded. We are public officials. Every communications that we have is on public record. So 
come to find out, let's say I give my elected official a call. I tell them that, you know, it's this is not feasible. This is unacceptable that I can't get someone to understand my culture when it comes down to going to the doctor's office. And if they were to say, well, you know, I don't care, it's going to be recorded because it's public record. And I don't think that our community understands that. I think that they just trust our elected officials to act with good faith. But what they have to understand is that they work for us. I work for you all. It's not the other way around. So if there is something that's concerning, it's something that a policy that you feel like doesn't truly represent you, you have to speak up. And for as long as we sit there and try to act like the model minority, they're not going to know that we have a problem with these public policies. Senator Maharath brought up some quality action items. We need to expect more from our leaders and communicate our wants and needs. And this passion and drive doesn't only last until Election Day. We have to start paying attention to what happens the next day, November 4th and onwards. Electoral politics at such a high level is important, but like Senator Maharath represents so many at a more local level, Thunvi definitely encourages investing time into local politics. I think that, you know, everyone go out, vote, do that, but like, don't put a lot of emotional energy into it, honestly. Like, I don't think that's where the true work is to be done is in electoral politics. I think that the social movement work that we saw this summer was so, so inspiring, was so um, moving and really changed, you know, the people's opinions. Like I got my parents talking about defunding the police and that's something that they never would have wanted to talk to me about. Or they would never have asked, oh, what, what do you mean when you say the carceral state? Like those are not topics that we could have broached before the Black Lives Matter, like mass protests and mass rebellions that and uprisings that took place this past summer. And so I kind of think that if Listeners to this podcast are excited about what is going on this past November. I really urge them not to make their politics revolve solely around solely around presidential elections, but instead to sustain that energy into their daily lives and organize within their communities to whatever you know extent that they can. There's so many cool grassroots organizations happening right now and really cool national ones. So I definitely think that organizing locally, continuing to read radical texts, continuing to have those tough conversations and to most importantly take material action is what's important right now and voting is a very small piece of that puzzle it's an important one yes but i think it is an extremely small piece in the wide you know range of things um look in your local communities to you know friends and family you have who are doing really cool work um whether it's in mutual aid whether it is through volunteering services whether it is through political education Look there for your representation, honestly, because I think that is where we see real change being made. And I think when you look for electoral politics, when you look at, you know, federal politics, think about ways in which you can honestly not reform the system, but like deconstruct the system and build a better one and think about that. Kamala represents a really monumental moment for some people, and seeing her up there, knowing that they share heritage or roots with her is so exciting because it's so uncommon. So we need to find that balance in medium where we can be excited, but still make sure to hold her accountable. Um, We're talking about the national ticket. We're talking about the presidential ticket. Local elections are even more important because that directly affects what your taxes look like. It directly affects what your schools look like. That directly feeds into 
all sorts of things in your community for your life to get better, right? So representation at the local level, I would argue is even more important than representation at the uh, national level. My second part to that answer is that it doesn't end there, right? It's not representation for the sake of representation. It is, okay, let's get this done on November 3rd. What do we want What do we want November 4th to look like? What do we want the rest of the year to look like? And um, doing systems work, like actually taking, looking at politics or electoral politics um, as a systematic work and progress is really, uh, it's a necessary lens, right? Because yes, it is the grassroots people and the activists on the ground who are making a difference, but having a pathway up into the power is really important because that power will funnel down to these people that those grants and those that funding will funnel down to the people who need it the most. And that's where we can make the most radical change. The more productive way to see and use representation would be to compel our elected officials to act in the best interests of those they represent by getting them to channel their power, wealth, and influence to these grassroots issues will have a much more fulfilling and satisfactory relationship with our elected officials. Senator Maharath provides some valuable advice on how exactly to do this, how to be intentional with our civic engagement. With with this incredible discussion we've had, I wanna I want you to kind of deliver some parting words about just overall advice. You know, whether especially with the call for social equality and racial equality this past summer, and it feels like people are starting to have more tough conversations, tough discussions with their peers and their parents who might have unprogressive views, I guess. So with this rise of civic engagement, hopefully, and you know, Gen Z listeners out there, whether Asian American or not. What is your advice for us who are kind of starting to become more involved, hopefully? I want us to break that model minority myth. Oh my goodness. We are not all the same. We are not uh, monolithic. Like we have to come together. We need to acknowledge the fact that we need better representation. We need to celebrate the vast diversity of our community, but we also need better representation. So we need you to not only run for office and get elected, but we also need you to continue on to our ancestors' legacy. We are our ancestors' wildest dreams, especially me being child to refugees. My parents never had this chance to vote. So the fact that they even get to vote, the fact that us Asian American women get to have equality with our male counterparts, let's embrace that. Let's stop being a model minority. Let's stop taking whatever they give us because we earned our right to be here just as much as everybody else. They may oppress us, but that doesn't mean that they should be oppressing us. Although this is how it have been, this is not how it should be. And we have equal rights to be here just as much as everybody else. And we need to acknowledge that for our future. So we need people to participate in civic engagement, whether that be with census, but you, it goes on beyond this discussion of actually voting. So I really appreciate your time today to bring this topic to our table because our community desperately needs to have this table discussion. That's so good to hear. And I think What's frustrating, especially with the gen, with Gen Z and, and the media and the rise of social media, especially, I think we, we see social media activism as like, you know, you'll put on your Instagram story and, and people will just put vote and that's the end of it. You know, people don't ever expect more or want to do more because they think voting is just the end, you know, the, the, the end all be all solution. But I think it's inspiring to hear from local elected officials to be like, no, you know what? Keep going. That's not the extent of it. We have to take it upon ourselves to continue to not only vote, but, you know, vote in our primaries, talk to people, talk to elected officials, reach out to them, reach out to our representatives and ask them and, you know, voice our opinions. So I think it's, it's good to hear from someone literally 
who is an elected official, who is a state senator, and hearing that, you know, voting isn't the end of it. You know, you don't just go to the ballots and, and vote and then go home and pretend everything's going to be okay, because um, that's not that's not the extent of it. So we know that representation actually has an effect and matters. But we need to hold these officials accountable so they're representing us beyond what we see on the surface. Rather than passive engagement and simply voting and paying attention to surface-level characteristics, let's push ourselves to become actively engaged, doing research on our candidates' policies, holding them accountable, and finding representation in tangible ways. I hope this offers a key perspective on Kamala Harris, as well as ways you can continue to actively, intentionally participate in civic engagement. But we're not done talking about this just yet. Look out for a bonus episode this Friday featuring Morgan Harper, who recently ran for Congress in Ohio as a grassroots candidate. She'll be offering her take on representation in politics as a Black woman. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Fresh Off the Vote. Follow us on Instagram at Fresh Off the Vote. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. We upload every single Monday, so stay tuned. There's so much to cover during and up until November, but is there something you think we should talk about? Hit us up. We want to know. Also, you can donate to us on Buy Me a Coffee. Any amount helps and will be greatly appreciated. Our team can't thank you enough for your contribution and support. Thanks again, everybody. This is Swati signing off.